I'm Dr. Lisa LaTonta. I am the Chair of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the Yale School of Medicine. I have been a hand, elbow, and upper extremity surgeon for about 25 years. I practiced for about the first 20 years at the University of California, San Francisco, where I was chief of the division of hand, elbow, and upper extremity surgery, and the fellowship director for our hand and upper extremity training program. I also started a nonprofit called the Perry Initiative, the mission of which is to expose young women to the professions of engineering and orthopedic surgery, two areas that are uh, very underrepresented for women. Practicing orthopedic surgeons, about 7% are women. And among our trainees, it's about 14% now. So yeah, still very lopsided and not very diverse at all. And it gets worse when you start talking about underrepresented minorities. Your nonprofit, spell that. Is it P-E-R-R-Y? or okay. P-E-R-R-Y, named after my mentor and friend, Dr. Jacqueline Perry. Nice. Before we get into 3D surgical planning, you participated in the world's first elbow transplant. Elbow transplant, that blew my mind. Yes, this was a very unusual case and very unfortunate gentleman who was in a rollover accident in Texas and lost the use of his left arm from a severe brachial plexus injury, which means that all of the nerves that would make his arm move were damaged on the left side. And on the right side, he had had a horrible injury to his right elbow. So he essentially had no functioning arm because of the loss of the elbow joint from trauma, as well as multiple attempts in Texas to reconstruct the broken and shattered elbow. This patient was in the office of his orthopedic surgeon in Texas, who happened to be a former resident classmate of mine. And he said to his doctor there, well, why can't you just take the left elbow and put it on the right side? Because the left elbow joint worked, he just didn't have any way of moving it, and there was no elbow joint on the right. And so my friend, his orthopedic surgeon, first of all said, well, that's crazy. And then he (laughs) said, well, wait a minute. Let me call my my classmate who is an elbow surgeon and see how crazy this is or isn't. And so we spoke on the phone and I said, well, it would be very unusual, but all of the component parts of doing this have been done before in terms of vascularized bone grafts and moving tissue and things like that. But nobody has ever transplanted a joint before, as far as we were aware. So... The fact that he was his own donor mitigated any of the potential problems with having to suppress immunity or things like that when Uh we talk about a donor for an organ. So it seems like this is something that we could do. And so my friend in Texas, his orthopedic surgeon flew him out to San Francisco because he didn't have the, the means to do it himself. And they came out together and we examined him. And then I started doing the work up and building the team to actually execute the surgery. And we did use 3D surgical planning to make the parts where we were taking the one elbow and putting it into the opposite arm that go faster because we'd already planned where to make our cuts and how to move the right amount of bone and joint with the vascularized graft. So there were two teams of three orthopedic surgeons and three plastic vascular surgeons at took us about 11 hours that day to complete the surgery because we had to prepare one arm 
and then remove the elbow from the opposite arm and then transplant it, connect the bones, connect the vessels, connect the tendons and all of that. And so it was really a fabulous experience. We practiced the entire surgery on a cadaver before we did it on the patient because Mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that we had planned for all contingencies and things that we might not have thought of just going through it on a whiteboard. So it was probably the pinnacle of my surgical career because it was such a team effort and everybody had their part. They had to do their part in the right order at the right time and execute it flawlessly. And that's exactly what happened. And the patient sent me a video probably three or four years ago now showing him using that arm to hold himself up with a cane and walk for the first time oh, since wow. his accident. Oh my god. So goodness. that was the other yeah, that was the other problem because he didn't have an arm to use an assistive device. He'd had some fractures and injuries in his legs as well. So he was wheelchair bound until we got him an arm to help stabilize himself. You changed his life dramatically. How's he doing? Is he still okay? Yeah, he's doing fine. He actually, um, last I heard, he had moved from Texas to California and had a girlfriend and was moving on with his life. Wow. Have you done anything like that since? I guess it's, it's a, a unique nice- story. Absolutely. It's a unique set of circumstances. So I haven't done anything like that since. Certainly there are undoubtedly are other patients out there that would benefit because these are not a, it's not that unusual constellation of injuries from bad car accidents or motorcycle accidents. But one of the things that we've considered is, and I had talked to some of our immunology experts before I left UCSF, that it may be possible to do transplants. I mean, the arm transplants are being done for people that have lost both their hands and things like that. And so it may be possible to do large joint vascularized transplants like this and not have to necessarily suppress the patients for a lifetime. We don't know yet. We have to find the right patient and do that procedure for someone who understands all the potential pros and cons of that. Mm -hmm. But I think it could move the needle forward for very horrible traumatic injuries to joints or damage to joints from bone cancers and things like that. When you do repair elbows, how do you do that? Do you use cadavers or do you only use titanium and synthetic things? It depends on what the injuries are. So most of the injuries around the elbow are traumatic in nature, although there are some that are congenital. And then, of course, there's degenerative problems like osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. So for fractures, we generally are using stainless steel or titanium plates and screws to repair broken bones. But we can also replace elbows with metal and plastic joints, just like we can replace hips and knees. In this patient's case, that had already been tried several times, and he had had multiple infections after putting that kind of metal in the joint because he didn't have good blood flow. So the transplant helped him with providing a rich vascular bed to fight off any potential infections and allow the bones to heal. Have you always been fascinated with elbows? Elbows, uh, (laughs) we don't usually think about them. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's kind of interesting how I ended up becoming sort of an adult and pediatric elbow expert. When I started my practice in San Francisco, it was a very competitive market, and I decided that I needed some kind of niche area to specialize in or subspecialize in in the upper extremity. And so I sought out additional training because at that time in 1999, there was really no 
specific training for elbow surgery. And it was sort of the last bastion in orthopedic surgery where there wasn't, we didn't understand a lot about the joint, how we mm-hmm. should treat the joint. And consequently, people that had bad injuries there not, did not necessarily do well. So I sought out additional training from a few folks in the field that were also interested in this and a little bit ahead of me in terms of when they finished their training and had been in practice. And I spent some time with those folks and then spent a lot of time studying the area and the problems and cases started getting sent to me. And the more you see of a particular problem, the more you have the opportunity to problem solve. And so things just grew over time. And as I developed my adult practice, I'm also a pediatric um, trained hand surgeon. And I started getting bad pediatric elbows sent to me as well and built an entire practice in Northern California around that. So I still have patients that come from across the country, California, Hawaii, Nebraska, other places to see me now at Yale for their complex elbow problems. That was strategically brilliant, wasn't it? (laughs) It turned out to be, yes. Planning for for surgery, now 3D has uh, entered the picture. Uh, Tell me about how that works. More than a decade ago, one of my mentors introduced me to this concept of using bone models, which had been around for quite some time, but being able to print plastic bone models of a deformity that your patient had or a problem that your patient had. And the models were pretty crude in the beginning, but he had been doing that for a while. And then we both found out about a company that was taking this to the next step. They weren't just printing bone models, but you could do virtual surgical planning on the computer by obtaining CAT scans of the injured arm and the uninjured arm and making a mirror image of that and then figuring out on the computer how to correct the deformity to the uninjured arm based on those images. So I had a patient that came to my office, a young girl who'd had a forearm injury, had broken the two bones in her forearm, and that's complex anatomy because they have to rotate around each other as well as bend and straighten both at the wrist and the elbow. So it's complex anatomy, and she had deformity that we could see in the radius bone, the the bigger bone on the thumb side, but she also had some instability of her joint that was secondary to this deformity, and trying to correct these two bones in three planes based on 2D x-ray imaging is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And especially when a joint is involved, it's unstable. You have to get it right or you can't stabilize the joint. So I was aware of this technology. I thought it was the perfect case to try this on. And so I did my first virtual surgical planning on this patient who'd had these broken bones that didn't heal right that caused her joint to come in and out of joint. And it worked perfectly that once you do the planning online, then the company actually prints guides and jigs that you take into the operating room that can be sterilized. You place them on the bone. That guides you as to where to make your cuts and how to turn the bone and in which directions in order to make it look like it used to look before the injury. And then it also helps you decide in advance what plates to use, how you're going to bend those plates to fit the bone. And so it's very much a paint-by-numbers type of experience once you've done the surgical planning. Now, the surgical planning can be somewhat complex because you're looking at these images on a computer at the same time a clinical engineer is looking at them on the computer with you, mm-hmm. or it could be a biomedical engineer. Their backgrounds vary, but someone with expertise in manipulating these images and using this type of software. So the surgeon's input is, is they know what they need to do to correct the bone 
or bones and put them back in place. They understand the soft tissues, the nerves, the blood vessels, what might be in the way. The engineer understands how to manipulate the software, where to make the cuts to correct the deformity, and then also how to come up with the geometry of the manipulation of the bone to get it where the surgeon wants it. So it's very much a team effort. And on a simple case, it may only take 30 minutes to do the computer planning on the more complex cases that I do. It might take a couple of sessions that may last an hour. But the advantages are that it decreases the operative time because you've done all the difficult planning in advance. So there's less blood loss, less exposure to anesthesia, and more of a predictable result than if you're just planning this in 2D. And some of the things that we found out by looking at lots of different injuries in three dimensions is that some of the dogma about what these injuries look like and what the deformity looks like have been refuted by looking at these things in three dimensions. So it's easy to see abnormalities in two planes on x-rays, but the third plane, which is sort of an axial rotational plane, is almost impossible to see on a plane x-ray. And so we've learned a lot about how that type of deformity goes into some of these injuries, whether they're traumatic or congenital. And we can now design osteotomies, which is just a fancy word for cutting and turning a bone. So we can now design that in a way that really addresses the deformity directly. And I would imagine that surprises, once you get in there, were minimized because you are able to see the 3D picture. Exactly. You're exactly right. And now the only sometimes surprises are how the soft tissues are going to react to what you've done. Mm. But that's really no different than the way we used to do the osteotomies before. The soft tissues aren't always predictable. But the interesting thing is there's not a lot of training for how to do this. And so you still have to understand the basic tenets of how to correct this, sort of the normal or traditional way. This is just a tool to help you do it better. What about the ego of the surgeon? Are surgeons willing to work with software engineers and say, yeah, I can learn something from you guys too? I have no idea what you're talking about. Surgeons don't have egos. (laughs) (laughs) My mistake. You you always mention teamwork, and that's very interesting. You've mentioned it before when you you talked about Robin Cook, his elbow transplant, and then again now. Yeah, Reggie Cook. Reggie Mm -hmm. Cook, I'm sorry, yes. I think um, any surgeon that you want to have operate on you understands that surgery is always a team effort. Whether you're doing a standard case, you've got nurses and scrub techs and anesthesiologists and everybody always has to do their part. I think you bring up an interesting concept, though. I I mean, I've seen, I've presented at meetings this type of technology where there's, you know, had, I've had surgeons in the room sort of saying, oh, I don't need that. I can do that without it. And Mm. there's plenty of research that shows that using this technology that makes us more precise, whether it's using 3D planning for doing a a knee replacement or a hip replacement or a spine deformity correction, or in my case, a upper extremity or arm correction, it makes us more precise. It decreases operative time, all of those things. So there's plenty of research to support that. But the interesting thing about technology is some folks are very slow to adopt new technology. Some people are very quick to adopt new technology. And I think it's really about making an appropriate assessment each time there's a new technology that's available. I don't see much of an issue with 
the concept of needing to depend a bit on an engineer. Although here, if you understand software, technically you could get the software and plan it all on your own. I personally like having the expertise of the engineer who can take away. So I don't have the time to do all the things and the manipulations that they do in the background. So I, th- I think it's the most important thing about what you brought up is it, it is a team effort. If not, if one of the two partners doesn't understand what they're doing, then the outcome will not be good. And that could be on the engineer part or on the surgeon part. This isn't something you can phone in and just send the images to the engineer and say, make this look like the other side. It's not that kind of technology. You have to be involved as the surgeon and you have to understand what you're doing as the engineer as well. How much extra time does this put into the process? As I said, I mean, it depends on on the for me that you're correcting, I would say in my experience, I can plan a simple case in about 30 minutes with the engineer. And then, of course, they're doing things in the background. After we end our online session together, they're going to be manipulating the images, moving things around, but they're going to work on how it needs to be bent and things. So they've got additional time that they put in on the back end. For me, for most cases, it's going to range anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half to plan a case. Where do we go from here? What is the next step that you, that you envision now that we have uh, this technology? It's great that you asked that because I think eventually we're going to get to the point where we don't need these plastic guides and jigs to be printed. We're going to be doing this in the operating room with virtual reality and artificial intelligence where we are perhaps using some kind of special goggle where we can actually see the correction as we're doing it mm-hmm. without needing to have those parts in the operating room. So all the things that you see on um, in movies or video games that are applied for um, virtual reality and things like that can all be brought into the operating room. But it's like most things, the use of these things in, in the medical world lag behind the entertainment industry. But <laughs> a lot of this technology is already out there. Some of it is already being used in the operating room. So I, I think this is where we will be headed with this, that we will get away from having the guides and jigs, and we will be using virtual reality and artificial intelligence in the operating room to assist us in doing the same thing, but without having to have the plastic there. And the next generation of surgeons, it'll be commonplace. I believe so. I think that the way we do things right now in another generation will be obsolete if we take advantage of these technologies and if they're not cost prohibitive. Doctor, you've been fascinating. Anything that you want to add as we start to wrap up? I can't think of anything else. I I think you've um, asked all the right questions. So this has really been my pleasure to participate in. Oh, it's been fantastic talking to you. 